when you drive to Wendy's and order a single, you get more beef than the Whopper or the Big Mac. Where's the At Wendy's, you never have to ask, where's the beef? So what's fake and what do you trust? Boy, is that a hot topic these days. But is trust and the truth just something that's inevitable based on the delivery of a fact? Or is it, in fact, something different? Well, certainly trust is more than just facts or some emotionless, logical, Spock-like decision. Sometimes our trust can be different depending on who we're talking about. Trust is an emotion. It's not just off or on. It's got depth. It's not permanent. You can lose it. Think about who you'd trust to babysit your kids for a couple of hours versus who you'd trust to take them for a week. Wait a minute, maybe that's a bad example. Don't answer that one. Anyway, it's different. Trust is something that's developed, nurtured, and interestingly, an emotion that where we start out with quite a bit of it. Do you trust? Well, as it turns out, the answer is mostly yes, quite easily. See, there's this weird irony where we sometimes place excessive trust in things we don't know versus those things that we do. Trusting others is something that we think we should do. Studies have shown that we default to trust because emotions like anxiety or guilt or emotions that are so disliked, we often have excessive trust in strangers. So the study shows we stop at a highway stand of apples with no shopkeeper that says $2 for a bag of apples. And most of us not only pay, but we believe the apples to be especially good because of course they would not be wormy, otherwise the farmer wouldn't trust us to pay. Doesn't that sound like our social media feeds these days? It's news, it's coming from people in my network, so why wouldn't I trust it? Excessive trust, according to the researchers, is almost completely irrational. But we have it. Whether it's the unmanned farm stand, or eBay transactions, Craigslist, our friends, our family, or, yeah, that publication we believe would never lie to us, well, trust almost always works out. But that brings me back to what's fake and what's fact. As one of my teachers, the famous story coach Robert McKee, once said, what happens are facts. What we believe about the facts is the truth. And that's the theme of our show today. Facts, belief, and the truth and our responsibility to all of it. It's not just enough to relay the facts, whether it's our content marketing or the arguments we have with our family or our friends. We have to make people believe in what actually happened as well. That's the only way we fight the fake and take back the truth. And now I believe, I believe it's time for me to get to the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth and get our little hour of belief underway. All the news that's here that's fit to print, it's not fake, but don't take our word for it. See if we can make you believe. Can you handle the truth? Well, then let's roll. And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 159 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, November 28th, 2016. And with me, as always, is my co-host, my colleague, my friend, and the truthiest guy in content marketing, Mr. Joe Pulitzi. How are you, my friend, for this third week in a row? Holy smokes, we're together. I'm not in a good mood. I I mean, I'm in a good mood because we're hanging out, we're going to have dinner after this. But after waiting 45 minutes for a cab at LaGuardia and then another hour and a half or whatever in the cab, and then I went to the wrong hotel, Yeah, which is never a good thing. We we should be clear. We are are here in New York, so we're (laughs) finishing up our final leg of the Masterclass Tour 2016, and Mr. Orange himself is in a bad mood because the traffic from New York airports into the lovely downtown Manhattan is uh, was uh, was troubling. Hello, hello. <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not used to it. I mean, I am from Cleveland, Ohio. We don't have any kind of traffic like this. Yeah, we we don't have. It is the day after traffic. Thanksgiving holiday, so it is. It is, but 
it's not necessarily the traffic. It's because the cab driver that was taking me to the hotel went away that would it it just doesn't make i just can't even talk about it. i'm now getting upset <laughs> i said i wasn't gonna get upset i left the room before we were getting set up folks and i said i was gonna go find my positive attitude and i had it shortly and a granola bar I was feeling good and now I'm, now it just All brought right, it well, back. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take. I'm, so, folks, just be just be wary. I'm going to go get him a Tito's and tonic, and things are going to be just fine. We're going to be we're going to be just fine here. So, let's. Why don't we move into the news? No, no. Well, I mean, well, first of all, uh, you had a great Thanksgiving. I did have a. Lovely I had Thanksgiving. a wonderful Thanksgiving. Yeah. I, of course, it's gone now. But no, I did. It was we were in North Carolina. It was wonderful weather. I got to watch the Cowboys win. I don't usually watch the Cowboys. Play. Yeah. They're pretty good. Yeah, they, they. I mean, as you might expect, I had a lovely Thanksgiving because of that, and also because I got to spend it with. I the, for the first time in, as I was saying uh, on our last show, that that I got to cook for to almost twelve people. So, wow. which is rare for me. I'm usually cooking for like one or two people on Thanksgiving, and this year was a big one. So it was, and I love to cook Thanksgiving meals. So it's it was. It was a special. Yeah, it was a great weekend. It was just a really, really great weekend. And are you going to give out the secret? I did give out. Recipe? Somebody emailed me. Somebody. There was a few people who, who who contacted me, and one person in particular. I won't throw him under the bus because he maybe he can go make this for his family and uh, have it be a big surprise. But uh, yes, I did email it out. I did. I did email out the the recipe of what the turkey what? of the turkey yeah. with. Bacon, bacon, of course, yes, yes. With, bacon, with wonderful, yes. wonderful, with wonderful bacon. bacon. Bacon makes everything better. Yeah, I would. I got to cut the turkey, but that's all I did. I didn't do anything else. I bought the pies. All right, and uh, but everything else, uh, my wife and her mom just did everything else. It was it was wonderful. It was a wonderful Thanksgiving. And speaking of giving thanks, we want to mention that a couple of weeks ago we recorded we recorded our podcast on Veterans Day. And we were quite remiss in not actually saying that it was Veterans Day. So, wonderful, huge shout-out, obviously, to all of the veterans out there, both active, inactive, and uh, those who have passed and those who are still with us, to thank you on this Thanksgiving, day after Thanksgiving, for all of your wonderful service. So, and Big shout-out yeah. to my, my father, U.S. Army veteran. Oh, there it is. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I'll see him in a couple weeks, so very, looking forward to it. Very nice. All right, let's move on to the news, shall we? And the first uh, article that we have to talk about this week comes to us courtesy of Adweek and big news from Airbnb. So as we covered on this show, I mean, I think it was probably two years ago with Airbnb's Pineapple. Well, Hearst, Joanna Coles has partnered with Airbnb's new magazine venture, uh, says the Adweek article, by opening up and saying, a new magazine from Airbnb and Hearst was released today at the company's Airbnb Open event in Los Angeles. The first issue of this effort, aptly named Airbnb Magazine, not Pineapple, is 32 pages and filled with content from Airbnb hosts. Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky attempted to have, as he he called it his mini Oprah moment, asking attendees to look under their seats only to find a copy of the first issue at the event. Next year, the company is going to release two more issues of the magazine. Uh, then this is where we're going to have problems. The publication will also have a presence online. Apparently, the effort has been in the works for at least 18 months. Curiously, there was no mention of Pineapple at the event, the print magazine that Airbnb had launched um, back in 2014. So what, what do you think? I, mean, I, have, I definitely have a take on this, but what do you think? Well, <clears throat> a couple things. First of all, this, used to, this is just custom publishing. Right. So Hearst is a publisher, and they are, I'm assuming if I'm reading this correctly, which I believe I am, they are publishing uh, editorially, printing, they're, they're turnkeying uh, the magazine for Airbnb. So good for Hearst and getting to do um, you know, some publicity around it and say, hey, we're, we're doing this for Airbnb. Right. I'm not sure what they were doing for 18 months. That's a long time for this to be distilling. Uh, and... There was even in the article mentioned what happened to Pineapple. So for those of you that don't remember, Pineapple was the original magazine for Airbnb. That's right. And it had a couple issues. Yeah. And then sort of just... It was just, really good. Yeah, I loved really, it. Really, really beautiful magazine. Loved it. Loved everything about it. And then something happened and now it's gone. There was no mention of it at the, at the gala where they announced the new magazine. So, um, so from what I take from all this news is that Hearst... 
or that uh, Airbnb is no longer publishing their own magazine, Pineapple. They have stopped doing that. So those are internal people, that employees doing that. Now they've outsourced to a professional publisher to turnkey this. And they're going to be working with, uh, with people that, that rent uh, Airbnbs as well right. as people who, uh, who have the apartments for rent and the houses for rent. And they're going to fill it with tips and lifestyle and inspiration and all kinds of wonderful stuff. And they're going to do it at the amazing frequency of twice per year. <laughs> well, that's the yeah, that's the right, yeah, that's the that's the part that you know. One of the things that has been coming up again and again at our workshops has been, and you talk about this in your opening uh, your opening uh, bit about the research when when you discuss the idea of how little resources are now being, you know, we're, we're all doing it all. There's so many businesses are doing content marketing, but so many of them are doing it in just the smallest, most incremental way. And, you know, your major point is, look, if you're not going to go all in on this, why do it at all? And, and so many times what we're hearing at not only masterclasses, certainly, but it's been coming up, but at every event that we've been uh, doing is this idea that, yes, we're doing content marketing, but we're, two people or it's 20% of what we do or it's, you know, we're starting this little thing. I just don't understand. I really don't understand. If you're going to invest in something like this and your Airbnb and doing it twice a year. Now I get quantity, quality. We, of course we preach that all the time, but I think you could be great more than twice a year. I think you could be, and I, I, Mm -hmm. it's one of those things where, you know, it, it it when you do it twice a year, it appears more like an annual report than it does. I just don't understand the purpose behind it. I guess is 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 is, is what it's, I'm saying. Yeah, it's, it sounds like it's a coffee table book. Is right. pretty much what they're exactly. saying, which is fine. And the good news is, is they're leveraging their own distribution. I mean, they have it right. They're Airbnb um, which is, customers, yeah, exactly. So there's no, uh, and I don't know if Hearst is adding additional distribution to this. It doesn't sound like they are. They're just adding the. Uh, the production and editorial expertise, I'm assuming. So that's just it. Yeah, I, if you're gonna if you're gonna do something like this and you're going to announce it, I, I can only imagine being there and be like, oh, okay, uh, we're gonna do this new magazine. It's going to be awesome, and and you're gonna receive it once every six months. Right. I just, really? Right. Yeah. Exactly. It just you sort of you, it just wah, sort of, wah. right. I mean, exactly, that's exactly. Exactly. What that is. Exactly. <laughs> It just doesn't feel like it's. Uh, it certainly doesn't feel like a mini Oprah moment. I mean, you know, as the CEO called it. I just, I, it, I wish it had been something more. I guess yeah. is o- the, o magazine. Yeah, Oprah's magazine. Right. Publishes once a month. Right. It's monthly. Sure. So I mean, maybe I mean you could have one twelfth of an Oprah moment or one sixth of an Oprah <laughs> moment, but you can't have an Oprah moment. You can only have a fraction of an Oprah moment. <laughs> There's your tweetable moment, folks. I want everybody to tweet out Joe Pulitzi. You can only have one sixth of an Oprah moment. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our next story. That was an interesting one to start off our show with. Um, this next one is an older article, but we, because it's a discussion that we found ourselves having. Uh, fairly frequently of late and has been sent to us a couple of times. We wanted to bring it back up because it's such a it's a really good article here. It comes to us courtesy of our friends at Contently, of course, friends and family of the show. Um, and uh, the headline here is Editor's Guide to Working with Brands. The article opens up by saying, 10 years ago, if you told your newsroom colleagues that some of the industry's most gifted editors would start abandoning their gigs at marquee media brands to join beverage companies, software providers, or a service that delivers pet treats to your home, you'd have been laughed out of the room and possibly prescribed some heavy-duty pharmaceuticals. However, today, having a great editorial leader on staff isn't just helpful for brands, it's table stakes. And the article then goes on to talk about, uh, from written by, by the way, the head of Contently's editorial services team, the idea of how he's helping dozens of editors really help navigate their new careers in this new world. And one of the ones that we want to touch on, for sure, and I know you have a take on this, Joe, is this idea of how really the, the, the legality of content and, and creating content from an editorial or journalistic sense has really plagued a lot of content marketing initiatives to, to really getting up and going and being robust. So, I mean, what did you think about the article and, and, and what do you think about that issue? Well, I think the, the, so it actually comes up in the beginning of this article talking about 
my client's legal team keeps shredding our stories. How do I solve this for the next round of content? Probably in every workshop I do, I don't know about you, Robert, but I always get, how do I handle legal? I send it over to legal. They take a month or they take weeks. Um, they, they, they shred the article up. Months sometimes yeah. is right. It's, yeah. like, it's like I can't publish consistently. I can't, we lose our voice. So my recommendation, and then I always ask, well, have you gotten together with legal and have you formed a, this is what we can do with your, without your permission. This is what we can't do without right. your permission. Sort of no. a red light, yeah, green light exactly. Thing, yeah. And the answer is always no. I'm like, okay, well, the first thing you have to do as an editor for a corporate brand is get together with legal and say, hey, this is what we're trying to do. This is our goals. We're trying to build an audience. We're trying to communicate with that audience consistently. So to do that... We need to make sure that we publish on a somewhat consistent basis, and I can't keep checking with you. Right. It's the same thing for social media, by the way. You right. can do th- Everybody's all scared. Oh, we can't do this on legal. Not true. You, they just ha- they're doing their job. They just have to know what you're going to. They don't want any surprises. That's right. So don't surprise them and create you know the rules <laughs> the rules of the road, if you will, for editorial. So I don't know if you run into that question. I run into it all the time. I do. Yeah. It's you know I I, I mean as you might expect it's it's. It's more prevalent with you know financial services brands, or pharmaceutical brands, healthcare, um, and I do. And I talk often about the red light, green light, yellow light process that I've seen so many organizations. I've helped so many organizations begin to implement, where you sit down with the legal team and you and you look at the content and you go, great. If it's content like this and it meets these criteria, that's a green light. You can publish that without us knowing about it. We'll check it. We'll look at it. We'll you know we'll review it over time, but it can be reviewed in the rear view mirror. Then there's the yellow light stuff, which needs our approval. You want to check with us. And then there's the red light stuff that quite frankly, we're going to have to go check and we're going to do some research on and, and all of that. And, and, and getting those processes, that governance level in place is, is critical. The other thing that I often find these days, um, which is across different kinds of brands is where legal is coming back and, or other parts of the organization is coming back and saying, well, if we start acting like a journalistic publication, if we start acting like a publication, are we then a publishing organization and thus can we be treated and sued and all the rest like a publishing organization? So, you know, we can't mention other brands and we can't do this and we can't do that. And that's a whole, so there are, I mean, there are, you know, there are things to work out for sure, depending on your business and your sort of appetite for risk and those kinds of things. One of the things that I've been seeing more and more is, as we've talked about on this show a number of times, businesses that are actually beginning to launch separate companies that are actually, you know, Johnson and Johnson and Baby Center is a great example of this where it's a separate division. It's a whole separate company. Red Bull Media House is the same way. It's a separate organization, a separate P&L. Um, and that's another way to sort of look at it. Anyway, he goes on to talk about a number of these things, these issues. And I just thought it was a really good article beyond the legal stuff, just talking about really talking these editors off the ledge about what it's like to work in marketing. Mm-hmm. Well, the one thing that and this now I'm going back 20 years into publishing, and I think this is something that publishers did wrong, is they always kept the chief editor out of the financial conversation. Yeah. It was always this church and state thing. We've got revenue on the one side and our product, the content, on the other side. And rarely were there meetings where the chief editor and the publisher got together and actually talked financials. I mean, the editor was in there thinking about, okay, how much do I need for my managing editor, my proofreader, and production costs? I mean, there's no doubt the chief editor was involved in that. But when you really got into the, the lines of business from a revenue standpoint, the editors were purposely kept out of that conversation. And right. that's where media went wrong. Well, now, here brands now have the opportunity where that chief editor, that chief content officer, whoever that person is, needs to be involved and understand what is going to make the content we create successful. What does success look like? So that means the chief marketing officer in small business, uh, the, the owner, operator, needs to make sure they communicate that and review all the time with whoever's leading that content initiative saying, you're going to be successful if you do this. And if I don't see these types of results, we're not going to do this or it's not going to work for us. Or, and, and I think that's where if you come from traditional publishing and you've been kept in this church-state relationship, it's a, it's, you're talking about conversions. You're talking about the value of subscribers, which you should have technically learned at a publishing operation, but maybe you didn't because they kept that line 
pretty committed to. I don't know. You, well, you know, what, one of the things that I find so striking in what you're just saying there, and of course I didn't, you grew up in publishing, so you know this world so well, And, and, and but what I'm hearing you say, it's so funny, because with different words applied, it's, it's one of the biggest reasons that I see content marketing initiatives fail in bigger businesses is simply because nobody in marketing wants to have that discussion, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to go out and sort of have that, that discussion with the C-suite or the CFO or the, quite frankly, the CMO or the chief legal counsel. Basically, Everybody wants to sort of, you know, it's like, it's easier. It's just easier if marketing sort of sits off to the side, does its own thing, does what it knows how to do well, isn't exposed, isn't taking any risks, isn't sort of sticking its head out of the sand saying, we can do this new, cool, interesting, weird, innovative thing. We have no idea what we're doing, but we're going to try it and it's going to be different and we're going to fail and we're going to, and we need to think about things like how the editor you know handles subscriptions and where the value is there and yeah. you know and all of those things and it's simply a lack of desire to have that conversation rather than sort of an inability to do it at all i totally understand not having that conversation but when we we would go into really large brands and go pitch them a custom magazine concept and we would pitch them the vision and we're going to be inspirational and entertaining and we're going to deliver it to 50,000 people and we're going to do it on a quarterly basis. And the results were we were going to tell stories and deliver them to a person. And the delivery was the execution. That <laughs> right. was the results. It's right. like, and then when we did the review every year, we're like, we are really excited. We delivered a magazine every quarter and they actually got it. And then we do a survey and say, well, did they? And then, of course, we right. get into some fluffy. Oh, right. they liked it. They read it 30 minutes. The ones that read it, read it for 30 minutes right. and those types of surveys, which was as that was as granular as we got with the results, <laughs> but when anybody said, "Well, is it is it moving the needle?" Everyone was like, "We delivered fifty thousand <laughs> copies, and it was a good thing. <laughs> this was wonderful. And it was so pretty." And did, did we you, tell you about the traffic? And did you feel the paper and the paper? Oh my God! And your picture on the cover, Mr. CEO, or Mrs. CEO, has looked so wonderful. So yeah, so that's what. We well, did. It's, it's, but it's 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 a thing because I mean you, I mean you've heard me do this now so many times when I teach the measurement part of content marketing, you know, that's that segment of our, of our workshop. And I talk about the idea that you are not going to find value in a Google, you know, dashboard. You are, you are going to have to get out of your cube, go and walk and talk to people and sit down and figure out the attribution of where content is making a mark on creating a better lead or more leads or, you know, that value has to be, negotiated it has to be found it is underneath the human's desk it is not in a google spreadsheet and it is not in some marketo report it's not in a dashboard you're going to have to go find it because every successful content marketer i've ever talked to has said basically we created the value by going and talking to all of these different people and basically my analytics report was a PowerPoint that I worked four weeks on going out and talking with people and figuring out where the value was because I was making the business case every single month for this thing to exist. And that's the and that's the that's the that's the truth of it really. Well I think it's a great point. I guess I would leave this with if you are an editor in a with a brand, you need to ask the tough question of how is this thing going to be looked, viewed? <laughs> right. What behavior do I need to see? That's, That's really right. what I want to know. I can tell all the greatest stories in the world, but at the end of the day, what's the behavior? And then how do we document or show that that behavior is happening or is not happening? And that's a very, very tough question. But to your point, if you could say, hey, we don't know, but this is what we're trying. you got to create the hypothesis. I mean, I remember the chapter that you wrote in Managing Content Marketing. This is in 2009, where where you talk about making the business case. And you said you need to come up with the hypothesis. That is, it's... You know, I read that over every once in a while because you really, that's that's what you have to, just like I'm working right. on my kid's science fair project right now. I'm like, well, what's the point? Right. I don't care. We're working. <laughs> I'm not going to get into detail, but I'm always like, so what? Tito's okay, and tonic. Tito's and tonic. <laughs> Tito's and tonic is coming. What's the point of the vodka? Yeah. You know what the point is. I know it. You know it. 
And we're all going to know it soon. <laughs> all right. Well, let's move on to our next story here mm-hmm. and get to that point, which is a really interesting article. Big hat tip, by the way, here to Jim McLeod, who sent this over uh, via the hashtag on Twitter. Thank you, Jim. Um, the headline here is, Is Content Blindness the New Banner Blindness? This comes from an article on Forbes.com and opens up by saying, The early days of the Internet were like the Wild West. Really? Okay. It was an exciting time of exploration in a completely unknown world. Even things like banner ads were irresistible to our curious points and clicks. In 1994, AT&T uh, made internet history by running the very first banner ad. Today, the average click-through rate, CTR, for a banner ad weighs in at less than 1%. Even a moderately decent one clocks in at 0.8%. But that AT&T banner ad, as modest and primitive as it may seem, recorded an astonishing 43% click-through rate. 20 years later, banners have almost universally been considered the most annoying part of the internet experience, and then we call it banner blindness. And the article then goes on to talk about how content blindness, uh, content shock, content crap, content, all this stuff basically is creating this new idea of blindness to content. And, well, what did you think? I have two takes. I really want to hear your take. (laughs) <laughs> uh, my first take is, this is coming from Forbes, as you mentioned, and I did not get the pop-up pop-over oh, because I have man. the Chrome, there what do you, you call that? The, the extension. The extension, yeah. the Chrome extension that my son Joshua told me to get, and I went right to the article, and it, it was brilliant. And McForbes is a more pleasant experience. It's a more pleasant experience. Yeah. So, Interesting. So I can't, so if you go to Forbes on a regular basis, you can download the extension and go right past that first pop-up. And it was a joyous occasion. Okay. I got to tell you. We shouldn't uh, be having Forbes as a sponsor anytime soon. But, <laughs> yes, but, but it's a brilliant occasion. That's another discussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I would say is, I mean, I've, I've talked about this. I, I can see the point. I totally see the point that you're trying to make with the whole content blindness thing. But I've always believed that we've always had too much content, if you look at it that way. So, so what has happened recently with all the social media and everybody saying everybody's creating content? Yes, is there a lot of people, a lot of companies, a lot of people creating content? Yes, but we're, there's there's always been too much content to consume. So I don't know if I can make this case that it's any different now. We look for content that's going to help us, and uplift us, entertain us. We look to our friends to deliver those ty- types of uh, like you do. You'll send me a note, hey, check this out, whatever those things have been going on for a long time. I don't necessarily know if this is a new thing. Do you I don't think it's a new thing. No, and and, and I appreciate the point that the writer is trying to make here, which is that bad content is glossed over. And, And however, what I would say to that is that bad content is glossed over based on a, the return experience. In other words, and, and your audience's return experience may be shorter or longer than others. In other words, the tolerance for bad content. Um, Forbes is a great example, and the way you opened this up was a great example, right? You had a blindness. Other than the fact that you knew it was a quote, there was nothing I'm sure you could recall about the Forbes popover, pop under, or whatever it is yep. that that would make you memorize it because you developed a blindness to it. You just knew that there was this thing that you had to click OK as soon as the countdown went to zero. And so that level of blindness is classic banner blindness, right? Classic ad blindness, because we know where to expect the unit to appear. That's the reason for banner blindness is not because of the content in the well. It's the well itself. In other words, we're, 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 we're immune to the, what we see around the content well, whether it's a banner, a photograph, an ad. We recognize it. Our subconscious recognizes it as an ad, and thus we're blind. We sort of tune it out. It's, it's uh-huh. just a, a distraction we tune out. The reason we're going to the article to begin with is to read the article. And so you, you, you inherently can't be blind to it. Otherwise, you're just op- you might as well be opening up a page that says lorem ipsum and blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's, yeah. you're, you're, you're direct, your attention is directed to the content itself. Now, and you don't know that it's bad content until you started to go through it. Now, the, the, the blindness that I think he's wanting to really get at here in this article is the fact that if you do that repeatedly – 
In other words, if your blog does that repeatedly or if your magazine does that repeatedly, you will eventually get to a point where you tune it, you tune that magazine out, you tune that blog out. There are plenty of email newsletters that I have tuned out and unsubscribed from because quite frankly, I was just not seeing them any day anymore because I would see them and immediately delete them because I knew that the content was going to be bad. From that perspective, that is a argument to say continually creation, continually creating something interesting consistently, as we've preached for a million yep. years, is the cure for that blindness, right? And and that is the whole point. So it, 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 it has less to do with the concept of banner blindness, in my opinion, than it does with the idea that what we're really trying to get to is the ability to continuously stand out on a return experience. You can, you can bore somebody once, you can't bore them twice, right? And so you bore them twice, that's when you start losing them and losing them. And again, your audience's you know, tolerance for that may, may vary from everything from you fool me once, I'm never coming back again yeah. to that. But I, the, the whole point of this is, 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 is that and the only challenge I really had with this article was is that the, the solution seems to be right, make better content, which is, it's like, you know, it's like saying, how do you make good chocolate chip cookies? You make really good chocolate chip cookies. That's how you do that. It's like don't don't tell me to do the thing that you put in more <laughs> chocolatey morsels. Right, it's gonna be even so, better. Yeah. So anyway, so I that's 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 the only, that was my only take on it is is that it's 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 a little different than what we're yeah. when, what we're thinking about is ad blindness and creating better content. Usually, you're right. Is not there's many other things that go into it. <laughs> it's, it's like than it's just creating just, better content. It's, yeah, well, creating better content is everybody's goal, right? Yeah. It's like you know, how do you get rich? Well, first you make more money, and then once you do that, then you've pretty much done the rest. It's a lot easier <laughs> yeah, than once yeah, you have it. Exactly. <laughs> once you, you start just, making more money, then you then, just have to keep it. Yeah, exactly. Oh. All right, let's move along to our next story here, um, which is. Uh, Students don't know when news is fake. Now, we talked about fake news last week, but this is a really interesting article that comes courtesy of the Wall Street Journal. And it opens up by saying, uh, teens and basically those that are younger than teens may appear dazzlingly fluent fitting among social media sites. Flitting. And use the word flitting there. That, and I didn't see that. Flitting. Flitting among social media sites. <laughs> uploading selfies and texting friends. Leave it to the Wall Street Journal to use the word flitting. Okay. Flitting. They're, they're flitting around, but they're often clueless about evaluating the accuracy and trustworthiness of what they find. Current to the theme of the show. Some 82% of middle schoolers couldn't distinguish between an ad-labeled sponsored content and a real news story on a website, according to a Stanford University study of 7,800 students from middle school through college. The study set for release uh, this Tuesday, meaning tomorrow from where we're recording, is the biggest so far on how teens evaluate information they find online. Many students judge the credibility of newsy tweets based on how much detail they contained or whether a large photo was attached rather than... And the source. What do you, what say you, Joe Polizzi? I do want to talk about the the content of this article because I think it's it's worth chatting about. Shall we flit around? But yeah. I do have <laughs> this. the The title of this article is "Most Students Don't Know When News Is Fake." Stanford study finds right, and then they go in to talk about sponsored content as right. being fake news. Yeah, they're right. totally lost exactly. me right there. Right, because it's. We we're, we had this huge discussion last week over real fake news, right. like untrue exactly. news. Sponsored content. And then they go into this and they talk about the fake news of the bank president talking about you need to get this loan. He's, it's not untrue. It's a different perspective. Right. It might be a biased perspective, but That's it's right. not fake news. Exactly. So I had a whole problem with this article, for, especially from, it's just surprising from the Wall Street Journal, too, yes. that they would let this go through to say, and I get it, right? You're using fake news because it's in the news right now. It's going to be more shared. Of course. People want to talk about it. But really, uh, the, the challenge is from the Stanford University study is the difference between sponsored content and and news and content traditional that's news correct. content that's right. is i think the different thing now now that aside we can have the conversation there were there were well, some I'm glad you brought that findings. up because it's an important distinction because that's where they lost me as well is that they i i was looking at this going 
Okay, I'm. Th- this is really. In- oh, you lost me. I mean, because you know, really talking about branded content and con- and what we would call content marketing. Although, once again, Wall Street Journal refuses to use that word for whatever reason, and I'm kind of glad in this case that they didn't use that word. But you look at that and you go, yes, we've seen plenty of studies where not only kids. Not only young people, but adults aren't really caring that much between whether it's sponsored content or or otherwise provided. But this is sort of an article about that, not about whether it's fake news or not and whether we can trust it. Which, interestingly, is kind of ironic given the whole point of the article. (laughs) so the the other challenge I had with this article was basically something like, oh, nearly four in ten high school students believed based on the headline that a photo of deformed daisies on a photo sharing site provided strong evidence of blah, blah, blah. Like they right. believed it. Right. And they're talking about uh, uh, high school kids, middle school schoolers, those types of things. That's right. You can't have this article and say students or kids because... It's and and they're talking about oh parents need to teach their kids how to research. The parents are just as bad, right? You know the ones that were sharing all the fake news that have been happening. It's not the kids, right? It's been the parents. It's been our elected (laughs) officials that have been sharing news that's not true. Just to yeah, right. Tito's and tonic is coming. (laughs) (laughs) So I just I had an issue. So so basically the the. it, it the, the article and the point of the article is is that when kids or adults, I'm going to say or adults, but let's say students, kids, they see something online, most of them seem to believe it without checking a further resource. That's right. Without looking at, oh, that's a bank president and they might have a bias. Maybe I should get a second opinion on this sort of thing. So it's... I, I don't know if this has always been the case it, it, because there were so there were only there were much more controlled media outlets. You had just the traditional media news outlet that you know before 1990 we talk about. There right. were only eight ways to get information. Right now there are thousands of different ways you can get that, and now we we actually can make a choice. We can say, oh, we can go to this outlet or that outlet or that blog or that newsletter or whatever, and that's where we have to change the way that 20 years ago. Where oh yeah it's it's on the six o'clock news it's been fairly well vetted that's right. I don't have another place to look for it anyways so that's there you right go. and 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 that's such a great point because what I dislike about this article so much is that it artificially makes the case that you can't trust what a brand tells you that's right and so what you know what we have said forever with the idea of content marketing is that you know you you've all heard us say this on this show where we say why couldn't a starbucks or a you know a, a brand create a newspaper or why couldn't we create a piece of content that is actually as good as what the new york times is producing etc cetera, etc cetera. because quite frankly what that artificial and you can argue i mean look i've had this debate with people and I'm happy to have that debate, right? It's a great debate whether you can actually cover the news or you could cover journalistic ideas or investigative journalism from a brand perspective and not be independent. Wonderful debate to have. What I can't hold is that you can't trust a brand simply because it's branded content and that you're artificially holding up some standard that doesn't exist right now. Uh, yes. A whole lot of yes. Capital (laughs) Y-E-S, yes. I'm going to put this out there because I really do believe it. I think that as long as the traditional news sources rely for the most part on eyeballs, advertising for their business models. That's right. There is an opportunity right now for somebody that doesn't operate based on eyeballs to do a better job. I of think the news. that's exactly and, right. And here's the and this just came up. I'm not getting political at all, but the, but this is just in the last day. Uh, President-elect Trump came out and said millions of illegal voters uh, voted in the most recent election, yeah, and he was right. very upset about it and put that in a tweet. And CBS News took that tweet and said. Trump's, Trump says that there was there are millions of illegal uh, voters in the latest election. That's right. Making it sound like it was true gave validity to it. Right. And the president-elect 
had no sources for this. Right. The, and there, there are no sources that I know of in reading, but... But CBS took that because they wanted they wanted to take it fast. They wanted to go viral. They want as many uh, eyeballs on that as possible. They took it and they ran with it. Well, they've since had a correction on that, but it's already done. They've already done the damage of giving it validity. That's right. Now, if you were somebody and your business model didn't wasn't like a brand, like it's 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 based on your credibility, your authenticity, and you're looking for different financial results than just eyeballs, could. I don't it's know what the answer right? is. A question. Could they do a better job at it than a CBS News? And I would like to have that discussion with somebody What's because it? I think the possibility exists. And maybe now more than ever before, you could have uh, a brand be a a player in the media yeah. because... An ombudsman almost. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where's that Tito's, man? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I love that. I'd yeah. love to have that right. conversation. Yeah. I think there's a huge opportunity for a big brand to do that. All right. Well, speaking of huge <laughs> opportunities for big brands, we've got an opportunity for big brands that we just can't go without. I mean, this our sponsor here is is so awesome. Could be the greatest. It could be the greatest. Could be the greatest. Could be the greatest. Today's sponsor is, of course, our own Intelligent Content Conference, March 28th to 30th, 2017 in Las Vegas. And if you want hardcore content strategy for marketing professionals, this event is for you. You have to be here. ICC brings together the leading experts from around the world to help you create a more scalable, workable content strategy with less human involvement. And in this case, that's a good thing, folks. If you touch your ongoing content strategy in some way, ICC is for you. You will learn how to leverage the technology today that's available today to create better experiences for your customers through content and super excited about this year's brand speaking, including the Washington Post, IBM Watson, Zillow, Red Hat, LinkedIn, and many, many more. And we've also just announced world-renowned humorous author and journalist Fran Lebowitz as our closing keynote. Which I'm super excited and about. And Mr. Robert Rose will be interviewing Fran Lee Fran Lewis. on stage. Yeah. That's going to be, you can't, that's going to be so fun. It's going to be some mental gymnastics for me. I mean, she is, she is quite the iconoclast and just very witty. And I'm, you know, I had to keep up with Cleese. So it's going to be, I think it's going to be game on with, uh, well, with you Fran. Know, just a side note real quick, because we've had this question. This is a technology, mar- marketing technology conference we're putting on. That's right. And Fran Lebowitz is not a technologist by any means no. what's the fit in your perspective so here's 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 the fit and it couldn't be a better fit because one of the things that we deal with at intelligent content is not just the technology the the, the sort of wheels and machinations of how content flows but it's also the culture of content in our businesses broadly speaking more than marketing just yeah. bigger bigger ideas of how content fits in to the culture of what we do um, and how, by the way, the culture of where we live also fits contextually with what how content plays an enormous part. I mean, just to our discussion we were just having, how content plays in terms of an important piece of what we do as a business. I can't think of anybody that has been at the forefront of where culture meets content and politics and the idea of where writing and journalism and the idea of storytelling better than Fran Lebowitz. I mean, she's been at the, I mean, from Andy Warhol all the way through the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. She's remained relevant and just a fascinating woman. And I'm, I can't wait to meet her and, and chat with her. I re- well, I, I was watching a, um, a video of her being interviewed. She is hilarious. Oh, yeah. She's so funny. I just can't wait to sit back. Yeah. I'm just going to be crying. You're going you're gonna to have fun. Yeah. Okay. It's going to be an armful for so, sure. So yeah. from now until December 16th are the last days to get the very best rate for Intelligent Content Conference, including our pre-workshops and our special pre-conference event on marketing and leveraging artificial intelligence and machine learning. We're going all out, folks. Yeah. That's all we're doing. Go to intelligentcontentconference.com today and sign up your team. You'll make Robert and I happy if you do. Yes, you Thank will. You. Absolutely. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for your favorite part of the show. It is our rant and rave section when Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over makes makes something that makes us feel like We've been lied to our face or something, quite frankly, that lets us feel the truthiness ooze through our whole body. (laughs) 
Um, and let's see, you're going first because you got this old. Yes, you have this old rare. It's a rare occasion, yeah. folks. I have this old marketing. So this is interesting. And by the way, I did have. A, another rant and rave until I was in the cab so long I was reading another article so I have another one so I read an article in the cab uh, on, in the USA Today apologies for that um, entitled Media Companies to Lobby uh, to Lobby Trump by Roger Yu now basically every four years the National Association of Broadcasters asked the FCC to review their rule on media cross ownership or the idea that bars a media company from owning newspapers and television stations in the same market. And I knew of this, but I didn't, I haven't, it hasn't been, uh, been on anything that I've read lately. So it was interesting to read this. Now the article states that the NAB is cautiously optimistic. A Trump FCC will take a fresh look at reforming outdated local broadcast ownership rules. The original rules were devised in 1975 they also stated that a media company could not own more than one of the top four TV stations in any one market. The FCC drafted this rule because they felt that if the rule wasn't in place, it would inhibit d- diverse opinions. And probably back in 1975, that was probably sure. a pretty good thing. That's so, so funny. This is going to fit really well into what I'm talking about. Fantastic. Right yeah. So the FCC most recently completed their review of this in August and voted 3-2 to two to maintain the rule from 1975, except that they did allow a TV business to invest in a failing newspaper, but it had to be a failed newspaper only. I think that's interesting, too. Anyways, now with Republicans expected to take over the FCC's five-member panel, the NAB plans to ask the agency to reconsider its latest decision, which could happen sometime next year. Now, here's my take. Uh, These rules were made when there were only eight possible ways that consumers could get their information, maybe less than that, actually. Um, Now, since consumers can now get information from hundreds of different sites for good or bad, this law is actually pretty outdated, in my opinion, with the with the issue less about TV and newspapers and more about digital media. I don't think we can look at at media companies anymore that are just newspapers or just TV stations since both print uh, and television stations publish online right all the time. So. In essence, every publisher is a digital media company. So just thought this was an interesting piece. This will come back in 2017. We'll have a discussion about it. Um, It's interesting that there's this rule in place for a lot of media companies right now that I think in a year won't be there. So... So I have to tell you that this, so I mean is that it, you're you're finished yes I mean, I mean it's fascinating to me um, and I just have to tell the audience we did not plan this um, when I'm about it because wait till when I tell you the commentary I have my little rant oh it's it's gonna fit like like a glove here. Um, and we did not plan this because like he was, he was, he was, you know, <laughs> Joe was, you know, having his head explode in the back of a New York cab. And, and I was actually lounging here, eating some Pringles here in my lovely hotel That's room. Nice. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. It was beautiful. All right. So here's my, here's my, it's a commentary really. First of all, huge hat tip here to Buddy Scalera, friend and family of the show. Just a lovely, lovely, lovely man, Buddy Scalera. So ha- ha- thank you, Buddy, for sending this over because um, it was really wonderful. It's, it comes from um, the uh, Wharton School. And he sent over this article, which was titled The End of Digital Advertising as We Know It. And so, of course, that caught my eye. And, and, and I went and read it. And, and basically, the, the article opens up and says stuff like, Facebook has said that ad load, which I just find amusingly, my, the 14-year-old <laughs> starts to, you know, wants to giggle there every time I see the words ad load. Um, basically, it's the relative volume of advertising versus content on its pages. It's not going to be able to fuel the revenue growth as much as it has to date. The disclosure indicates, as the article says, that the display rate of business model, which has largely been the industry standard for monetizing content on the Internet, may be tapped out. So the article goes on to talk about how the ad load, as it were, is really starting to show signs of stress and that really the end of digital advertising is nigh. And so we should be prepared for that. And so... Um, and to be clear, the article doesn't say that every, anything is dead here, but it gets to that point pretty quickly. It says that basically this is, I mean, the title says it, right? This is the end of digital advertising and we, as we know it. 
And it even goes on to talk about how the IAB, right, so uh, said in November that digital ad revenue grew 19% in the first half, and we've talked about this on this show, to $32 billion, but said that 74% of ad revenue in the first half of the year was going to be concentrated among top 10, basically 10, and we actually distilled that down and talked about how it was really two companies out there, really. So here's my take and my sort of commentary, if you will, is, is that... The idea here is is that what we need to remember is is that it's growth that has slowed. Nothing has died. Nothing is. I would argue that nothing's even dying, but just it's a slower growth of. So, in the sense that you know the airplane has flown up and flown up and flown up, and the rocket ship has burned and burned and burned and burned. Well, now the burn is over, and so now it's got a very long glide path home. And so that's where we should be looking at advertising and digital advertising for sure is that growth is slow. There's no doubt. And Facebook will have to face the Wall Street analysts and explain that and figure out how it's going to monetize and grow and all those things as we go forward. But here's what I want everybody to remember. And this is where it comes into what you were just talking about is remember the 1980s. And so in the 1980s, and this is, I grew up during this time frame, and I heard this argument before, and it just felt so familiar to me when I was coming up through cable TV, because in the cable and television, so right after deregulation in the early 80s, there was this huge spurt and growth and enormous innovation that happens right out of, right out of deregulation. And basically you had two things happen on two sides of the coin. Big ad agencies consolidated. The 80s was just filled with ad agency consolidation. It's when WPP and Publicis and all of those became WPP and Publicis and world conglomerate, you know, sort of the advertising industry just went loop and consolidated into giant, big uh, uh, companies. But then you had this weird, interesting thing. Broadcast television started to get disrupted with cable TV and you had companies like MTV and ultimately VH1 and Turner and CNN and all these little cable companies that were advertising driven come up and disrupt. And what had happened? Really interesting thing happened is, is that the bigger companies started to eat the little companies and became big again, became big networks, only it was the smaller companies that became bigger companies that ate the bigger companies. And then you also had sort of disruptive companies come in and start launching their own things. So for example, you like you had Viacom buying MTV and then Comedy Central and basically aggregating all of these different smaller apps together. And then you had big networks like Turner launching their own apps, or should I say networks, called CNN and TBS and HLN, Headline News and Turner Classic Movies, all of them ad run. And so they basically created these giant networks of apps that drove advertising and basically across ever smaller niche audiences. And that was the whole point of that. And the, the, the interesting thing to me is, is that because when we started to see the consolidation happen into the 90s and into the early 2000s, what we started to see was those smaller companies like ABC and Disney and CBS basically start to get subsumed back into other companies like Viacom, right? So here's a great example. Viacom was a small company that got spun out of CBS and then turned right around in the late, in the early, uh, late 90s and bought CBS, because what did it do? It aggregated all these cable companies together. We're seeing the same thing now. That's exactly what we're seeing now. And what you're talking about is going to be so interesting to follow. Because when, I, when we're saying that advertising is dead, that's short-sighted. When we're saying that advertising is dying, I think that's short-sighted. There's a long glide path here. And there's a lot of things that can happen. And a lot of interesting disruption that can go on. In the meantime, when we think about it, think of advertising and the idea of advertising as tectonic shifts, right? So continents move very slowly. The idea of the trees and everything else with that that suffer from the earthquake, well, they move very quickly and very suddenly. And so it's going to be fascinating to watch things like what you just talked about with the NAB and, and, and looking at ad- deregulation that you know is coming and all of that. And as it happens and watch Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter and Google and all of them start to become media companies. And what does that really mean? And to me, it's just a fascinating, it's a fascinating time, but it has nothing to do with advertising being dead because it's a long way from being dead. I love the historical perspective. I just read another article on how newspapers need to try to change their business model. And the, the whole, they were talking about the newspapers 
back when the newspapers first started and the printing press first started, they were afraid of the telegraph. I yeah, mean, just <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, come yes, on. It's that's been right. going on for so long. That's right. So that's exactly just, right. It is crazy. So, Great so anyway, Love yeah, it. yeah. Totally fun. It's really, really interesting. We have a This Old Marketing to talk yes, about. Yes, we do. We have a This Old Marketing. I have it. And uh, as many of our listeners know, there have been a few times over the past three years that we haven't quite seen eye to eye with the publishing methods of our friends at, at HubSpot, Marketing Automation Company. But that said, no one can deny that they have used content marketing. If you want to call it content marketing, <laughs> we would. Better than almost any other company out there going from a startup in the mid-2000s to, as of the time of this airing, a two-plus billion dollar valuation. With a B. With a B. I think it's $2.08 billion to be exact. So they've, uh, they've done some pretty amazing things. Now, although we've mentioned their customer event inbound and their blog and ebooks on this podcast, we have never mentioned possibly the key initiative that created the movement behind inbound marketing, and that's the book. Inbound marketing brought by uh, co CEOs uh, or co founders Brian Halligan and Darmesh Shaw. The book was originally published in January 1st, on January 1st of 2009, and was revised in 2014. The book defined the idea behind inbound marketing or basically publishing content that leveraged search engines and social media to attract new customers, bringing them into the websites instead of having to go out like outbound, if you would. And they did it long before it was cool to talk about it. So 2009 was a little bit ahead of the game. We started talking about content marketing in 2007. Um, in the process, HubSpot became synonymous with this idea of inbound marketing and basically are given credit by a lot of people that they invented the term. Um, I think it's interesting, Robert, that the whole marketing automation category, including folks from Eloqua and Marketo, have all leveraged print books from their executive team to set the vision behind their overall content marketing strategy. I also think that um, David Merriman Scott, who published his best-selling New Rules of Marketing and PR, should probably get a little bit of credit for HubSpot going in sure. this direction because he served on. He, well, he gets he gets he, yeah he he he's gotten fine credit. He's he's on, well he's he he was an early investor. And, early, but well, yeah, yeah I'm sure he's doing just he's, fine. Yeah. He was on the HubSpot advisory. He needs board. no kudos from yes. us. He's gotten and kudos of plenty. He worked with HubSpot <laughs> on their overall strategy. Absolutely. So it's just interesting. We wanted to go back. Um, according to our latest research, print. Ma- we're going to go to magazines for a second, but print magazines have not gone down in the last couple of years. And they and I really believe they've hit a floor, and we're going to see this, you know, where I would say innovative companies go back to print, print books and print magazines, as an opportunity to cut through the clutter. Maybe that's never been, um, in, but never been there for print before because we've got all these excess digital media channels. So, uh, you know, and HubSpot was able to do it with their book inbound marketing in 2009, and of course, it's made a huge impact on their business. And I think you're going to continue to see that. So that's our, our this old marketing example. It's a great one. I mean, here's a company that truly invented an entire category of marketing and has benefited because of it, right? I mean, they you know they they could have come out and competed with you know in marketing automation and competed with Marketo and Infusionsoft and you know at the time Constant Contact and you know that, of course they've grown since then into so many different things. But they basically came out. And said, no, no, what we do is not marketing automation. It's a new kind of marketing. It's an entirely new category of marketing, and we've just invented it, and it's called inbound. And and, and then they basically owned the term and became the thought leaders within it and became the sort of self-destined solution for anybody who wanted to do inbound marketing. Well, we put so much focus on the digital media part of all these, even if you yeah. look at their, yeah. their blog as their platform or Marketo's blog or El- Oracle Eloqua's blog, but all of them have amazingly successful customer events, and all of them also have had at least one, if not multiple, print books behind their initiative. So sometimes we get so focused on the digital, we forget that all of them are diversifying, like a good media company should, into in-person events and print as well, and and HubSpot's a good example of that. It is indeed. It's Tito's time. Oh, thank God. <laughs> it is Tito's time, let's, my friend. Let's, let's go. Let's go do that. And and we're 
We've got the New York Masterclass Absolutely, tomorrow. Yeah. We've got Boston on, on and Thursday. We wrap it up. Yeah. And we are done and had a successful run, but uh, it it'll be good. a fun week. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be a good week. And so that's it. We're off to Tito's. This is Robert Rose for Joe Polizzi. We are signing off. And if you like this episode, number 159, won't you leave us a kind review on iTunes? Won't you? Please, please buy your Tito's. And if you haven't yet, we hope you will consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. And when you leave us a review or if you subscribe, any of that, let us know, won't you, at the hashtag ThisOldMarketingOnTheTwitter.com. We'd love to thank you personally for all of that. Of course, story ideas, story ideas. We need them. We love them. We want them. Those This Old Marketing examples. We want to appreciate you and thank you. But hashtag us up, won't you, This Old Marketing on Twitter. Or, of course, you can send us an email at ThisOldMarketing at ContentInstitute.com. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes, which are available in the show as we publish on Monday night. And, of course, on the show post at ThisOldMarketing.com on Saturdays. Until next week, everybody. Remember, it is your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.